I hope you guys had a good Sunday today. I know Sundays are kind of the day to get your feet underneath yourself and kind of get established, get into the routine a little bit. And uh, me and my family are excited to be at family camp. Uh, We love camp, and I didn't know this until I got here this week, but I do really love Family Camp 5. And yeah, yeah. A part of that is due to the large group of Minnesotans. Yeah, I was uh, talking to Patrick Odell when we first arrived, and I said, it's kind of weird because I'm outside of the Iowa bubble being up in Minnesota preaching up there, and then I got here and figured out that most of Minnesota is here anyway, so it's, uh, it's all good. But uh, me and my wife were both born and raised in Iowa, go Hawkeyes, and uh, that wasn't as enthusiastic as I was hoping for. Yeah, thank you. Uh, my wife is an Iowa State fan, so we're a house divided there, uh, but... We grew up in Iowa, and so we both started coming to camp from an early age and just really, really appreciate the ministry that uh, the camp has and just the impact that it's had on both of our lives. Uh, I was telling my wife, and she didn't even remember this or claims she doesn't remember this, but we first met in the back of the chapel. Some mutual friends introduced us, and I must have just been chopped liver because she claims she knows nothing of it. But uh, we're excited to be here and just very, very thankful to have the opportunity to share God's word with you this evening. So let's just pray together before we dive in. God, thank you so much for this camp. We thank you for all of the workers and staff this week that make this possible for us to be here. We pause for a moment before we dive into your word just to recognize that your word is living, it's active, it's powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing and dividing soul and sunder, and dividing the thoughts and intents of our hearts. We need that this, this evening. And so I would just pray that as we dive into your word, each and every one of us here this evening would allow your spirit and your word to have their way within us. We ask these things in your son's name, Jesus. Amen. If you could hypothetically take three years out of your life and spend it with anybody in the world and ask them to teach you one thing, who would you choose and what would you ask them to teach you? Probably have never thought of that question before. It's a really random question. It'll make sense in a second. Uh, But as I was thinking about that question, the first thing that came to mind is I would probably choose somebody in my line of work. I would probably choose another pastor to go and spend three years with. And maybe some of you would do the same. You'd probably pick somebody who has had lots of success in your particular field, your particular workforce, just so you can learn from them. Uh, Two guys that I have really appreciated over the years, their ministries are Kevin DeYoung and Alistair Begg. And... Man, it'd be so fun to just spend three years underneath either one of those. And I'm not sure exactly what question I would ask them. For Kevin, I probably would ask him, how in the world do you get anything done, let alone the amount of stuff you get done with nine children? 
Or maybe I'll ask him why he still baptizes babies. I'm not sure. Uh, he's not a Baptist, uh, but he's accomplished a lot for, for God's glory. Maybe you'd go bigger than that. Maybe you might choose to spend your three years and ask one question to somebody like Elon Musk. Okay, you guys are familiar with him. Some of you may appreciate him. Some of you might hate him. I don't know. Don't really care. Uh, but he, of course, is the owner of Tesla. He is the owner of Twitter. He 3D prints houses and does a bunch of other things. And I'm not going to get into green energy and all that tonight. Don't worry. But you have to admit it would be interesting to spend three years from him to learn how to innovate like he does. Maybe you would go more fun. For me, I like sports. Uh, I was just telling some people I enjoy golfing. That doesn't mean I'm good at it. But I would love to spend not even three years, just three minutes with somebody like Tiger Woods or Rory or John Rahm so he can fix my slice and help me to make three-foot putts. That'd be pretty fun. If you got to spend three years with Jesus, what do you think you would ask him? Of course, you guys know the disciples were able to spend three, roughly three whole years with Jesus in the flesh. Can you imagine that? They, of course, learned a lot from Jesus. I'm sure they soaked in every moment that they can. But the one and only record that we have of the disciples actually asking him to teach them to do something is when one of the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. That was in Luke 11, verse 1. If you've read through the Gospels, you know that the life of Jesus was full of prayer. It was packed absolutely full. We have tons of verses like Mark 1.35 where Jesus got up, he went away to a secluded place and he was praying there. We have verses like Luke 5.16 that say, but Jesus himself would often withdraw to a desolate place to pray. He actually started his ministry with prayer. If you think back to his baptism, right after his baptism, what did he do? Luke 3, 21, Jesus was baptized, and while he was praying, heaven opened, the Spirit came. Right from the get-go, it was all about prayer. Of course, he ended his ministry with prayer as he prayed, Lord, not my will, but thine be done. I think it's safe to say that if prayer was a needed and necessary priority for the life and ministry of the Son of God, prayer should also be a needed and necessary priority in our lives and ministries as well. This week we're going to talk a lot about prayer, and there's not a week long enough to exhaust everything that the Bible has to say about prayer. So tonight... Uh, what I simply want to do is give you a prayer primer. Okay, before we came up, I had to mow the lawn and do the weed whipping. And before you have to run the weed whip or the, or the blower, you have to push that little button, that squishy little button that gets the juices flowing so that the engine can start. 
And that's what I want to do for you guys this evening is simply just get the juices flowing, get your brains thinking and contemplating about prayer this evening. So in Luke 11, verse 1, when the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray, where did he go? What did he say to them when they asked him to teach them to pray? Well, he quoted a portion of the Lord's Prayer. And so tonight we want to turn to Matthew chapter 6 and look at the entirety of the Lord's Prayer. A little bit of context for the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, if you have not read through it, most of you have, I would encourage you to study it. But if I could summarize the Sermon on the Mount, I would just say the Sermon on the Mount is basically Jesus encouraging the listeners to not settle for behavior modification, but to rather endeavor towards heart transformation. There was a lot of Jews, there were scribes, there were Pharisees, and they were very proud people. They were proud of just how strictly they kept the law. They were proud of their own righteousness. And Jesus, time and time again, throughout the Sermon on the Mount says, you have heard the law say this, and that's not wrong, but there's more to it. It's supposed to go deeper. It's supposed to penetrate into your heart rather than just being this list of do's and don'ts. And so in chapter 6, he's addressing some of these religious things that people were doing, whether it's giving to the needy, praying, or fasting, all of these good and right biblical disciplines that they were twisting for their own self-glorification. And what we find in this text is exactly what Jesus modeled with his frequent prayer to the Father Although Jesus was fully God, in his humanity, he was still 100% dependent upon the Father. And so the big idea this evening is simply that prayer is an expression of our dependence upon God and an opportunity to align our hearts with his. Prayer is an expression of our dependence upon God and an opportunity to align our hearts with his. If we look at the first couple verses of the Lord's Prayer, we're going to see that there's kind of two alternative ways that you can pray. He gives us the first way to pray in verse 5. It says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners so that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they will have their reward. What we see in that verse is simply that the proud pray as an expression of performance. It's all about them. It's about how they can be seen. And you might be sitting here tonight be think, thinking to yourself, well, nobody does that. Like nobody's out on the corner out by the chapel just praying extravagant, long, wordy, super spiritual prayers. But sometimes we can fall into the same trap. We're more concerned about what others are thinking about us when we pray than we are about the fact that we're actually talking to God. We think that somehow if our prayers are longer or more eloquent or more spiritual sounding using big theological terms that somehow that's going to impress others or it's going to impress God. The people were praying 
with many words and with empty phrases. Now, this doesn't, of course, mean that because somebody prays for a long time, automatically we should question the genuineness of that prayer. It doesn't mean that if somebody is eloquent in their prayer that they're automatically full of prideful motives. Once again, Jesus is not concerned about the outside. He's concerned about the heart. And so he goes on, and we see the alternative to that in verses 6 through 8. But when you pray... Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. So pray like this. And here we see, while the proud pray as an expression of performance, it's all about them, the humble pray as an expression of dependence. And the truth of that statement will come out as we continue moving through the Sermon on the Mount. But we also see that right here in verses 6 through 8 as well. He says, go and pray in secret. If this is such a struggle for you that you're so concerned about what other people think of you, you want other people to see your own righteousness, your own spirituality, then go and pray in secret where nobody else can see you. Once again, this isn't a public uh, ban on public prayer. Of course, there's there's a time and place for that. But the idea is when we pray, we are talking to God. Verses 7 and 8 tell us to guard ourselves against these empty phrases, many words. And it says that God already knows what you need before you ask. I mean, can you imagine, I have four kids, seven and under. If one of my kids came up to me and said, Oh, Father, thou art the most wonderful father one child could ever ask for. Mightest thou bless me with a fruit snack? I mean, I would probably laugh and give them a fruit snack because it's hilarious, but they could have just said, hey, Dad, can I have a fruit snack? And they've got the same chance of getting it, right? God doesn't need super long spiritual prayers. He just wants us to talk to him. He wants us to take it seriously. So I think this idea of pride and humility can show up in our prayers when we examine these different motives and methods of our prayers. But I think this is increasingly obvious when we examine the content of our prayers. I think if the objective of our prayer is not to be about us, but rather to be about God, then the substance of our prayers also should not primarily be about us, but rather should be about God. And I think that's what Jesus will teach us in sections 9 through 15. Here we see six categories, or perhaps you could say six requests or examples of things that you can pray for that will, in fact, increase your dependence upon God and help to align your heart with His. The first one is... Simply to pray to God. In verse 9, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
First of all, simply just recognize that when you pray, you're not praying to some type of force out there. You're not praying to an empty sky. You're praying to a real being. You're praying to God, the one who created and sustains all of creation. We sang about it this evening, but Isaiah 40 says, To whom will you compare God? Or what likeness compares with him? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is everlasting, the God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint. He does not grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. This is the God that you are speaking to. But even more than that, he's your father. Your father who is in heaven. The one who gave up his only son so that you can be his child. That's who you're talking to. Do you stop to consider that when you're praying? Man, I'm talking to God. Pray to God. Hallow be your name. Holy, set apart, above all else. One translation says, your name be honored as holy. He is to be esteemed above all others. So start your prayers by addressing him as Father who is in heaven. Lift up his name, exalt him above all else. And that alone will set the tone for the rest of your prayer. You can't be prideful after you just reflected on who you're speaking to and how much his name deserves to be hallowed. So first of all, pray to God. Secondly, pray for God's kingdom. I recognize this evening there's lots of interpretive nuances to the kingdom of God and how we interpret this passage, but I'll just say tonight that there's at least... First of all, the reality of a current existing spiritual kingdom that God is building, as well as a future physical kingdom that we will all be, be able to experience down the road. Philippians 3.20 says, our citizenship is in heaven. And so to at least some extent, we currently are a part of this kingdom of God that he is building so to pray for the kingdom of God is to say, I want not only your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven, but I, that means I want you as king. I want God to be the one who's ruling in my life. I want him to be the one reigning. I want him to be the one executing justice. I want him to be the one who has all of the authority in my life. I want the realities of God's kingdom to be true in my life right now, on earth as it is in heaven. Notice how void of self this has to be coming off the heels of hallowing the name of God. It's not my kingdom, therefore it's not my authority, therefore it's not my control that matters the most. It's yours. I want your kingdom. You know, we're, we're pretty good at building our own kingdoms, aren't we? It's so easy to focus on what we can see and what's right in front of us, our jobs, our homes, our bank accounts, and it's build, 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 save, store, et cetera, et cetera. 
I wonder how inclined we really are to building God's kingdom instead of our own. You know, if we're really passionate about building God's kingdom, you can go back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount and look at what he says is blessed in his kingdom. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those who are persecuted. Pray to God, pray for his kingdom, and then pray for his will. You can't pray for the kingdom of God and then not also pray that God would have his will in your life. It's like saying, yes, Lord, bring your kingdom. I want all of you, I want your authority, but this is mine. Sorry, you can't have this. That's so hypocritical. It doesn't work like that. We can't say, Lord, I want your kingdom, but I still want my will in this particular situation or scenario. We have to be able to pray, Lord, have your way with me. Let your will be done. This is one of the primary purposes of prayer, not so that we can tell God everything we think or we need, although that certainly is included, but prayer helps us to align ourselves with the heart of God. Let me remind you back to the previous verses we looked at that we are not to pray empty phrases. And so I'd encourage you, as you think about your prayer, to pray what you mean and mean what you pray. And I'll be honest, sometimes I don't pray things because I'm afraid. <laughs> I'm afraid that God will actually answer. Here in the Lord's Prayer, there's a slight shift from focusing on God and his kingdom to the individual. But even as this shift comes, recognize that the prayer does not become self-consumed. Rather, it continues to express an alignment of our heart to his, as well as expressing our dependence upon God. In verse 11, he encourages us to pray for God's provision. Give us this day our daily bread. I mean, I don't think many Americans have really had to feel the weight of what it means to truly actually rely on God for our daily needs. Nevertheless, James 1.17 would remind us that every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. And so if you believe the Bible, you have to admit that every good and gracious thing that is in your life today is a result of his grace. You say, but it's my intelligence, it's my hard work, it's my job, it's my money, it's my success. I've worked so hard for this, you don't, like, you don't understand how much time and effort I've put into it. No. God gave you the ability to do all those things. God is sovereign over all of that. You owe it all to him. One author rightly acknowledges that this is a prayer that fights against our own self-sufficient tendencies. 
and humbles us with a fresh reminder of our desperate and daily dependence upon God. We really do depend on him. Pray to God, pray for his kingdom, pray for his will, pray for his provision, and then pray for his forgiveness. In verse 12, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Notice how that's worded. Would you be bold enough to ask God to forgive you as you forgive others, to the extent that you have forgiven others? I mean, did you guys hear that skit the contenders did tonight? That was twist, twist, twist. We love forgiveness until we have to give it to somebody else. Our debts here in verse 12, of course, can be more than just money. I think about our debt before God. All of our sins needed to be paid for. Because the payment we could not work long and hard enough in order to even make a down payment for. And yet through his blood on the cross, that payment has been made. Verses 14 to 15 give us a little more explanation about this forgiveness idea. It says, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive yours. We'll come back to this in a couple days from now. But we're not talking about salvation or losing our salvation in these verses. Remember, at the beginning of the passage, we're praying to our Father who art in heaven. And so we have a relationship that is secured. Patrick Oval nailed that this morning in his talk about the priesthood of believers and all that Christ accomplished for us. Our salvation is taken care of in the courthouse with God as our judge. Our account has been paid, but now we have this relationship with him that we must continue to pursue, that we must continue to ask forgiveness for as our sins are concerned. We are dependent upon God's forgiveness. We need it, not only for salvation, but also for sanctification. Then finally, verse 13, we also pray for God's protection. It says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Recognize this protection is not from what is hard. It's not from what is difficult. It's protection from what is evil. D.A. Carson said, we need the Father's guidance, the Savior's work, and the Spirit's strength to gain victory over the evil one. Don't think for a second you can fight against the devil apart from the work of God and Christ in you. We just had vacation Bible school this last week at our church up in Minnesota, and we were going through the armor of God. And one thing that I was so happy with is when we got to the last day, you know, we go through all the different pieces of armor, and usually they just stop before that passage ends, but, but where does that passage in Ephesians 6 end when it's talking about the armor of God? 
and how really the person of God and him working in and through us is able to enable us to fight against spiritual forces in the heavenly places. It ends not with the helmet or the breastplate or the belt or the sword or the shield or the shoes, but it ends with praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. Anytime we think that we have a chance of fighting against Satan in our own power, we've already lost. We are just inexpressibly dependent upon him, his strength, his grace, and his power in our spiritual battles. The other phrase in here, for yours is the kingdom, the glory, and the power forever. Amen. Ironically, some of, your, some of you may be looking at your Bibles and you say, that's not in there. Others of you have it in there. It's a textual variant. But at the very least, we can agree it is his. It is his kingdom. It is his power. It is his glory. I wonder if we pray to that end. What are we dependent upon God for? Well, everything in this list, really. It's his power to change hearts and grow his kingdom. We need his spirit to work in our hearts to desire his will and not our own. We need his daily provisions. We need his forgiveness. We need his protection. It's God, God's, 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 not yours. Once again, the big idea is that prayer is an expression of our dependence upon God and an opportunity for us to align our hearts with his. I encourage you to consider a few questions as we go this evening. Question number one, will you examine the methods and motives of your prayer life? Are they primarily marked by prideful performance or humble dependence? Examine the methods and motives of your prayer life. Are they marked by prideful performance or humble dependence? Question number two, which of these six categories or six requests that we just listed is hardest for you to pray? You guys saw the skit. All of them can be hard, depending on what we're going through, what, what type of circumstances we're in. I would encourage you to go back, look through that list, or even pray through that list and identify when does it become hard for me to mean what I'm praying. I would encourage you to ask God to help you to choose his way in that particular category of prayer. And then question number three, I would just ask you, are you willing to pray this week? We're going to talk a lot about prayer, but it does us no good to talk about it all week if we don't do it. Over in the retreat center, they have a, a long history of the camp, and I was paging through it. And they had one, one page about some of the early days when there was no land secured. People went and met in tents, and that's all they had and the description of what happened at camp was basically people would pray, 
And then when somebody was ready, they would preach. And then they would pray, and they would preach, and they would pray, and they would preach. And we're still preaching today. But I want us to continue to pray. I want you to invite God to work in your heart through his word this week. So let's pray as we close. Dear God, teach us to pray. Help us to love prayer. Help us to run to prayer. Because in loving and running to prayer, we love and run to you. You're the author and perfecter of our faith. We want to depend on you more. We want to trust in you. And our wayward hearts need to constantly be realigned towards you. And so our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Help us not to trust in ourselves and our own ability to provide and find security for ourselves, but help us to find it in you. Forgive us of our debts as we have also forgiven debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the glory, and the power forever. Amen.